Episode 2 of our journey into this island earth, the classic 1955 sci-fi slight horror. Is there any horror involved in this? Um, it's a no, big monster with a big screams, brain. She I suppose, once or twice. Yeah, I suppose if we put it into the context of 1955, there would have been horror. Yeah, a little swamp. A, a little scary. Swamp mon- monster-ish. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, and this is episode 2 of our show, our three-part journey into the – narration, the trivia, the facts and uh, figures, uh, basically our our impression of the film. And uh, last episode we had a look at the narration through Dan's segment, What the Plot? And now we're about to have a look at that narration from a different perspective with Rick's uh, segment, which is, tell us, Rick, what's the uh, name of the segment again? The Lost Sofa, Sofa. Loving it. The Lost Sofa. Explain, Rick, what The Lost Sofa is as a segment for the show. Well, I guess... I guess I could best explain it through my introduction. Basically, sit down, get comfortable, find your bum groove, and we'll have a bit of story time. Nice. Any change you find the back of the sofa, you're allowed to keep. <laughs> nice. Take it away, sir. All right. Um, okay, so I'm going to start looking at this um, basically through the people that actually wrote the thing. Um, like a lot of shows, uh, this began with a story. Um by Raymond F. Jones, who was a science fiction writer of the times. Um, he wrote um, a lot of uh, short fiction, sh- short stories, which back then were very um, popular. I mean, still popular now, but back then they appeared in a lot of magazines and pulp fiction books. Um, and he actually wrote three stories, which he then put together and turned into a novel. Um, which was called um, The Alien Machine, um, which then got turned into the script, um, This Island Earth. Um, so anyway, so he's credited as, Raymond F. Jones is credited as a story. A little bit about old Raymond here. I'm going to use my prehistoric paper, which I get mocked for by these odious toads <laughs> I do this podcast with. Um, okay. Uh What's he done? He's done. He did a lot of TV series and films. Um, there's a personal quote which I th- I like. I don't believe there is a storytelling medium that can surpass science fiction, but somehow I think we're missing the boat. I like that. So he was obviously 
dedicated science fiction, but didn't think probably the quality was all necessarily there. Um, his career is actually pretty typical in the fact that he's wrote a bunch of short stories, a few novels, managed to write um, a, a few scripts, and probably like every other writer, probably struggled to make a living. Um, he, he was well known. He was uh, nominated for a Hugo Award. That's kind of like the Oscars mm. for science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Not for this story, though. No, it was for a uh, short story was for The Rat Race, um, and it was published in Analog Science Fiction and Fact and was nominated for a Hugo Award um, back in 1966. Um, and in 1996, he won what uh, they have in the Hugos called the Retro Awards. You're able to vote for an old story that hasn't won an award that you think should have won an award. Um, so he got nominated for a Retro Award later on. Um this short story, The Alien Machine, was first published in 1949 in Thrilling Wonder Stories and was later combined of two other stories, The Shroud of Secrecy and The Greater Conflict. Are they meant to be an actual boom, boom, trilogy? Boom. I got a feeling it was a trilogy or just three stories. I I got a, I haven't actually read them myself, <clears throat> but it sounds like it was probably a short story he wrote, he liked, and then he turned it into a trilogy. Yeah. Um I'd heard somewhere that it was the the, the story was a trilogy. Yeah. Uh, so he wrote what ended up being the novel, um, and so then we have the scriptwriters who come along: Franklin Cohen and George Callahan. Uh, Frank, good old Frank, he had a bit of a interesting career. Um, he did a bunch of films and TV between nineteen thirty six. And 1995. Oh, wow. Um, mainly action films, mm. um, although every, everything is in there. Um, there's westerns, there's thrillers, there's war. Mm-hmm. A little uh, bit of black exploitation. Yeah, he, he later became uh, more known for his black exploitation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, like, he's been there. Um, I suspect probably, I don't know much about him, but I, he probably thought, hey, this is earning me money. They keep asking me back. Um, that's how often writers end up in things. Um, he did win. Oh no, he, he sorry, he was nominated for an Oscar um, for the Train with Burt Lancaster. Ah, uh, yeah. Which is for those of you that remember the Train. Um, I remember the movie. I didn't realize it was called the Train. Um, when I looked it up, I thought, ah, that film. It's when uh, Burt Lancaster has to meet a whole bunch of partisans and guerrillas. And they have to hijack and destroy a train that's full of Nazi stolen art, but they have to save the art. Huh. Yeah, that rings a bell. I think I've seen it yeah. in, in some uh, post-midnight sofa yeah. surfing scenario. Yeah, and that was – so he was nominated for an Oscar, which is pretty cool. Um, Directed by John Frankenheimer. Yes, there you go. Which is an awesome name. Um. But um, he's like Raymond F. Jones, um, obviously um, around the same time. They both started in the 1930s. Um, one of his more famous films is actually this one, This Island Earth, Old Frank. Um, and he reportedly had to add what I quote here, the pivotal character of the mutant at the studio's um, insistence. 
it's, it's that pesky studio mechanism stepping into the creatives world. Um, it was it a good decision, you reckon? Well, the um, two main actors, Re- uh, Rex Reason and what's the other guy, Morrow? Jeff Morrow. Jeff Morrow. Mm-hmm. Apparently, um, in interviews, which I thought was kind of surprising, said that they had to hold back during the filming because they thought it was ridiculous. Oh, really? I think they also said that um, during the screenings, the first screenings, they couldn't watch in the theatre. They had to leave the theatre. They thought it was so cheesy yeah. and, and crap. <laughs> However, for marketing, that thing was, was, was brilliant. It was gold. Really, yeah, that's why I asked the question. Yeah. It was really important for, for, for posterity that we now talk about this film. Yeah. Um, Makes you wonder if it didn't have that in the film, would it have been the cult classic that it became? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, no, you made me lose my thing. Oh, sorry, mate. With you and your zeros. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so uh, the other screenwriter was George Callahan. Um, didn't didn't find out too much about him. Um, he had a, a credit as a producer for some things. Did a bunch of action films, um, but didn't seem to do anywhere near as much as his fellow scriptwriter Franklin Cohen. So yeah, so we have this thing that's basically started off as a single short story. That turned into a trilogy of short stories that then got turned into a novel that then got turned into a screenplay. Um, I would have liked to have found out how they found, you know, how it went from being a science fiction novel into a screenplay. Someone must have read it somewhere and optioned it, I'm assuming. Did they write it together or was one scriptwriter replaced with the other? Um, I got the feeling they co wrote it from, okay. but I could be wrong. Um, it's very common, isn't it? The, sure. um, the someone will start the process and yeah. sometimes innocently just move on to another process. They've only got a so, small window of time. Yeah. Other times, a little bit more volatile. I think uh, famously, Gladiator had sixteen writers or something like that because no one could satisfy um, Russell Crowe's requirements yeah. in the story. There you the, go. the guy that finally got credited with the most sort of uh, writing cred for that film was the guy that could that learnt how to talk to Russell Crowe properly. Uh, a bit like that Superman film that never made it out. Oh, the, um, um, the, day, uh, the documentary, yeah. uh, The Day That Superman Died. Yeah. Or day that, The Day That Superman Lives Died. Yeah, something like that. I think it was going to be Superman Lives. It was a Tim Burton film. Yeah. It's a very good documentary. Uh, continue. Anyway, um, so... Um, some other interesting things about the writing. Um, where were we? Um, ah, it was originally uh, the sequel was in the works, believe it or not. In 1956, screenwriters Franklin Cohen and producer William Allen submitted the script titled Aliens in the Skies. Mm-hmm. But um, it was basically considered too expensive. Might it have been the Zargons actually now coming to Earth after having destroyed? Yeah, that would be a good uh, world, possibly. Mm. But no, the world will never see it. Um, all right. Um, the thing that we, we 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 keep going back to the mutant. You know, that was forceful, forcefully put into the script. Yeah, the mutant. Um, Story wise, it's uh, you know it's annoying. Um, it doesn't really serve a purpose. Which sort of wasted, <sighs> yeah. isn't it, as a character? They basically, you know, enge- genetically engineered insect menial workers for their planet. 
But as you say, they're they're neither they're neither like properly evil guys because they actually belong to the mm. um what what what's the race the the Melikans Melikans yeah I got the sense that they were quite docile yeah and the only reason why it attacked Exeter was mm. that it was wounded yeah and it was and they were trying to escape and yeah and go against um I guess what their home planet was supposed to be doing um yeah and. As we've spoken about before, why weren't the Zargons in there? Mm. That would have made much more sense. That would have been exciting. It's kind of a really wasted, um, mm. like it's cool, but make them the Zargons. Yep. Or make them the Zargons um, foot soldiers or, you know, give them a, pur- a purpose. They sort of deliberately dumbed them down and made them a and also ran character when they could yeah. have really, yeah, they could have implemented all sorts of things that made them more of a threat. Yeah, that was just a huge missed opportunity story-wise. Yeah. I think culturally it's huge because now, like, you know, even the game uh, Aliens Destroy Humans or whatever it is, they look like that. It's the big brain thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's in that 20 million cartoons and films. and Destroy all humans. And has been reused in other films. Yeah. Like, uh, mm. It's become a trope. Space, Space Jam and other films have yeah. reused that alien. Yeah, it's become a trope. Mm. Um, so, And it's one the only monster listed in the Universal Pictures list of monsters that is not from a horror film. Yeah. Oh, cool. It's the only one That's that is actually. Impressive. Yeah, it's like in, in this, with, with Frankenstein and, and, yeah. and the Wolfman and every, all the others. Yep. It's in that list of the famous monsters. I think I remember reading it somewhere that that creature as a character, as a prosthetic sort of mm. character, appeared in some other films around that time. I don't think that's the only film it was no. in in that period. Mm. I didn't read about it. Yeah, I think I saw it somewhere. And I think I saw it somewhere away from IMDb as a source of trivia. I'm not sure. Mm. But, yeah, I'm pretty sure it, it it appeared as a bit of a cult piece. Yeah. Yeah. It basically, you know, became the grey men, I mm. think, of the – so there were some 50s. opportunities missed in this narrative, wasn't there? Um, it's yeah, it, this narrative um, put people in and then didn't do anything with them. And it also <laughs> it was a slow boil for so there was so much backstory or seventy percent of the film, as Tom was alluding to earlier, before the action actually started, before laser beams started annihilating cars and people running and screaming and that sort of stuff. It was a real slow boil leading up to that, and I think it probably. Could have happened a little but, earlier, and then we could have explored a little bit more on Meta Luna. Interesting, not uninteresting. No, no, it's very well told story, very well filmed Paced. story. Mm. Um, good editing. I think it's very well done. However, yeah, if you expect from the posters and the trailers to see UFOs and aliens, you sit there and wonder where the goodies are coming. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, you didn't get to the aliens till easily into the third act, but I thought it built up nicely. I mean, you had. Atomic ray blasts and that green, you know, that green when he's space when he's yeah. a jet rocket, yeah, the beam right the- at the very start. So, you know, in in a minute, inside of a minute or two minutes in the story, you had alien laser yeah. beams happening. It's almost like it's trying to be two films at the same time. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's got the slow build of almost. Is is that a coincidence that there were two writers? Could be. Could be. Isn't it yes. often the way when we see multiple directors and multiple writers that because we get this duality, this multiple sort of um, sense of storytelling? Yeah. yeah, because you have that slow build XCOM-like mystery, mm. you know, the whole secret base run by aliens with a secret agenda to help their planet, blah, 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 you know, collecting scientists from around the world. Mm. Um, 
which is all kind of, you know, subtle and interesting and, ooh, what's going to happen? And is could it have a, been even, two films. You could have split it into in, – in today's tentpole – cinema world that we live in, we, we probably would have seen this as two films, wouldn't we? We would have seen it as the first film, which was really Earth-based, yeah. and it's all about those scientists collecting those scientists, mm. um, building that, uh, yeah, machine. that story. Yeah, yeah that- And then the second part, like the first one would probably end in a cliffhanger where they're called, uh, most of the scientists die – uh, the ones we've yeah. grown to love Seeing and as stuff. it's based on multiple short stories, I wonder if that's what yeah. the first alien machine well, was might have been just on Earth, that yeah. part. Well, it's interesting that you look at the um, – the, the like I said, I, I should have read the short stories, uh, but I haven't. Um, the first ones, um, where are alien we? Alien machine. Yeah, the alien machine, which probably is them building that supercomputer from a mysterious benefactor. Um, then we go to the Shroud of Secrecy, which is probably the base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Working on the base, all very secret. And then we get to the science fiction action flick aliens and flying saucers with um, the greater conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, makes sense. Yep. So when you divide it that way, it's kind of like the – because you could see how the first bit where he's – they you know, they get this mysterious stuff in the mail and they keep – you know, asking for more and more c- comes and they build this thing they don't even know what they're building. Yep. That's a short story there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you find out it's an alien and they're trying to, you know, they just auditioned you. Mm-hmm. But uh They sort of worked it into a three-act structure, didn't they? Yeah. 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 And then you have the whole secret base, you know, what are they trying to do, what's their agenda, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And there we go, you know, all science fiction-y aliens. Live to a different planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see the three segments, but they just mm-hmm. don't. Sit together well in this film. Yeah, um, I don't. I didn't think. Um, you gentlemen disagree. You think they sat well? Oh, it was a little clumsy. The 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 structure, the writing. As Tom said, like it, it delivered on a lot of levels. But yeah, it felt a bit clumsy in, in places. It's it's that abrupt, non conclusive. Let's go from here to there really quickly and not really have much of a bridge. And we see that in a lot of these old films, especially when you when they roll the end and there's no sort of conclusion. We've talked about that before. It felt a little bit like that, where we sort of we sort of jumped without resolving some stuff. Yeah, they, they spend even the build-up happens during the flight to Metaluna, right? So they have this really convoluted thing about the the two planets having different pressures. So they have to go into tubes so the bodies get readjusted to the metalunan pressure. They get magnetic handrails that their hands, for some reason, get magnetically attached to. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and they go through, um, they have this elaborate thing, this buildup of, I have to go to this planet, I have to, we have to transmogrify our bodies. And then to get to the planet... Mm. To realize, ah, oh, this is going to shit. Oh, yeah. let's go back home again. <laughs> and then we have to go it's through that process. It's just such a letdown at the <laughs> yeah. end. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably the, you know, the mutants are let down. They go to the planet only to find out, oh, well, we're too late. Now we have to get back, go back home. That's, that's kind of <laughs> like such a letdown. And then the main character, as we discussed, doesn't even serve the purpose of a main protagonist. He only reacts. He never initiates anything. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just reacting. Um, he he's not. He has no empowerment. He just kind of trottles along. Stuff happens. He's like a yeah, our vehicle to watch the story. Yeah. Mm. 
he he would he almost has the actions of a sidekick, but he's the main per- person. Another thing about the story is that there was only sort of one thread in it. Yeah. There wasn't like three stories going on simultaneously or four. I think that was a good thing though because it made the story clear to follow. It was yeah, very well yeah. told, very good cinematography. Another thing about the cinematography to add is that they made it in 1.75 aspect ratio. Okay. But they filmed it so that it could be shown on two, two to one aspect ratio films. Right. So every shot is so composed, composed in such a way that you could lose the top and bottom to, oh. to, to letterboxing. And uh, and still have the entire shot in frame. Yep. Hmm. That's interesting. And we saw a lot of that. Um, it's a bit of trivia here, me trying to claw my segment. Yeah. <laughs> when we when we move from the 4.3 to the 16.9 world, we see that, that crossover had a transition period where things really had to be produced for with both. a mindset for, for both. both yeah. mm-hmm. And now we're heavily just a 16.9 yeah. world. Mm-hmm. Um, so to hell with you – know, there was a – precipice i guess once we crossed it we thought well to hell with anyone that's four three we're going to make so i guess for this sort of stuff they, they had to do the same thing they mm. had to go through those uh those design processes all right okay going back then um there's a whole bunch of weird stuff and um science inaccuracies in the film oh, good Lord, yes. <laughs> um, i just want to quickly go over these um well for me the first thing was that gay this nerd flies around the jet plane like is he tony stark like what seriously <laughs> yeah no, no, he is. He's uh, but yeah. he's kind of made to be the you know. All he's got a flock of reporters around him. I kind of went, yeah, okay. Um, no one gives nerds jet planes now. I want he, my jet He's plane. a playboy. I think he's a he's yeah. one of those international playboys. Yeah. That sort of uh, daddy is a senator. Yeah, uh, type character. I don't uh, know. Tony Stark possibly comes from that's almost, almost the same yeah. era, <clears throat> and I don't think you have hero scientists that much anymore. Yeah. Mm. They're not considered the same as well, rock stars, yeah, like well, he is. Yeah, well, now they're the villains. Now we ig- ignore them. What, what do they know? <laughs> yeah, I feel that the Earth's fine. <laughs> it is. Um, I won't even go down that path. Um, also, when he's getting this, you know, benefactor who's delivering this supercomputer and. 2,400 and saying parts, no one's concerned. Are they the Russians? Are they the Chinese? <laughs> um, is it the Russians trying to steal an American scientist? It's the 1950s. Yeah. Um, you know, if they ate beef strong enough, people got sus- suspicious. Um, so I'm thinking they're all pretty blasé about the whole, you know, thing. Um, and then when Cal goes, agrees to go on the, you know, on the plane, like, I'm assuming he's important to whatever project he's got. Like, he's a pretty shit employee. It's like, <laughs> no. Nah. I mean, well, he's I, also he's a rock star, right? Yeah. They've already set up that he's this awesome yep. atomic electronic physicist dude. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to disappear for about two weeks from my work, and when they say anything, I say, well, you know what? I went on a plane to a mysterious place. <laughs> holiday stacked up. Yep. Yeah. Um, and see how, how that works. Um. Then we have, let's see, when they're leaving um, planet Earth and they go through the thermal layer that we basically call our atmosphere and they show Earth in a very distance. That's a big atmosphere we got there. Mm. Mm. So that happens way too too late. Yeah, yes. Um, but I guess it's 1955. People really maybe didn't know that much, so it's okay. Then you have the cat. Um, that Earth, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I hate doing it, but you know the Universal, this is a Universal film, yeah. you know the Universal logo, ah. which is the planet spinning? Yeah. That is that very planet spinning. 
Oh, cool. From the opening of the Universal so title. Is, no, it's the same model yeah, that yeah, they film yeah. when they film the Universal logo. They That's use that cool. same Earth model for this film as when, when they speed away from it. There you go. I'd like to know which one came with, the, first. with North America Did they being make exceptionally the model for oversized. This film? Yeah. Did this film make that model and it became no, I don't think the so. Universal model? No, I think the Universal model existed already. They had yeah. it in the shed out at the back yeah. of the lot somewhere yeah. and then, hey, you've already got one. Because yeah. this why, why build a new planet if you've yeah. got one? There's one out in the shed. This isn't a Universal Pictures. It is. No, it's not. It's RKO? No, it's, it's, it's Universal, it's, isn't it? No, it's, I thought it was it's, Universal. It's Universal Interna- International, so it's, um, it's a different studio. Back in 1955? Universal Pictures still existed, but yeah. um, Universal International was a subsection or a side. They weren't the same thing, mm-hmm. yeah? But I would love to know, yeah, which came first. Hmm. Then we have the fact that it's… Um, it's kitty cat. Well, no, the depressurization. We're oh, talking actually, about the cat. Oh, the cat. Yeah, Neutron, and Dr. Adam says, we call him Neutron because he's so positive. <laughs> um, <laughs> neutrons scientists. are we neutral. They're brainwashed. <laughs> they have no clue what they're doing. Um, he, That's why accident I realised brainwashing ain't good for them. <laughs> Um, to stop but she, she, she wasn't brainwashed. No, I th- uh, yeah, true. <laughs> she, was, she was maybe after she that just, comment. She just didn't trust um, yeah. Cal at, at first. Yeah. So um, no wonder they're not getting anywhere and the planet no. is doomed. Um, <laughs> None of these neutrons are working. Yeah. <laughs> they're not positive. Um, bring me a new neutron. Um, then when they do the depressurization, you've got some aliens stepping out who have now been pressurized for the planet. Yeah. So you've got people pressurised now for the planet. That's right. And people who are still from Earth. Who are doing the in, controls. In the same room. In the same room. One of them should be turning the goo. That's right. Yep. Yes, that's right. Um, the science is um, pseudo to say the least. Yeah. A little bit, uh, they got their wires. It's like they made a real effort. Um, the whole let's step in the tube with the magnetic, magnetic. magnetic hand holders <laughs> yeah. almost feels like that whole thing only exists so that later on we could have the spooky monster creep into there while yeah. they're stuck in the tubes because it makes for a suspenseful thing. And then in order for that to work, we had to go back 20 minutes into the film and make everybody stand in the tube for a minute. Being magnetically attached. Yeah. I suspect because 1955 people are already pretty hardcore into their science fiction. So I'm not going to blame uh, Raymond F. Jones, the original story writer for this. I'm going to uh, blame um, old Frank and uh, George. Yeah. The script writers. That's my, my money. Money's mm. on. Yeah. In the show's defense, a little bit. Um, they mentioned neutrinos. Yes, that's there. that's that's what the interrosita shoots. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Neutrinos. Neutrinos. Yeah. And um, I was thinking, okay, neutrinos. They're, they're like a real thing. They are. But I'm pretty sure that about zero percent of the population in 1955 <laughs> who have no access yeah. to YouTube or anything like that yeah. would have no idea what a neutrino is. Which is why is. they can yeah. do the, such shit with them because neutrinos go through a light year worth of lead without hitting any other atom. Yeah. They go through everything. So the fact that they shoot a hole in through a little bit of lead, yeah, 1955 audience might not have cared. Yeah. So the things that they're like that that the people are likely to know, they kind of get wrong, and then they. <laughs> Talk about things that people have no idea of that are there likely even, to. Even right. what our understanding of real science in 1955 was different to what it was in the 70s and mm. even different to now. So, our understanding of some of these things that today we look at and go, oh, yeah, we've known that forever. We didn't know it forever. Like, there's some things that we really only understood once mm. we 
jumped into certain sciences. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a lot of this stuff is a leap of faith. But I like the fact that they're trying to incorporate some about, science uh, into it. Yeah. How about turning a planet into a sun by bombarding just enough mass onto it? With comets. With, with, with meteorites. Or no, comets. meteors. Yeah. Just throw so, enough mass on it and yeah. it will eventually turn yeah. into a... Because how much do they have to throw onto the bloody but, Well, no, no, I could believe that. But yeah. in, the, in the movie, it happens over the space of about... 90 seconds. And spaceships individually bringing little meteors <laughs> and dropping them. You know? That's right. <laughs> I think Metaluna might, might have been a really a gas giant, mm. very close to, to a brown dwarf or something. Maybe that's why they, the pressure was so big. You know, that's, that's why they had to do the yeah. pressure changes. So it's a gas giant that's already very close to being a sun and they just have to accrete tip enough it material to tip, it, to tip it over the edge. Yes. Yep. So science makes perfect sense there. Except yep. I agree. Awesome. And I'd like, I'd like to end um, this section on a little sub-segment I call Smash the Patriarchy or How to Piss Off Women Really Quickly. Um, in, in, at about 14 minutes 40, um, Cal's assistant, Mr. Wilson. Oh, Joey. His, his wife? Little <laughs> yeah. Joey. Yeah, his wife would love this. Oh, Joey, yeah. Where he says, yeah, because they talk about yeah a push-button yeah, yeah, technology yeah. where you, and they <laughs> – Joe was his Robin. Uh, he was uh, Batman's Robin, wasn't yeah. he, in this film? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and basically, he makes a crack that uh, if that was really the case, his wife would put on some pounds because she would no longer have to do housework. Yep. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Um, uh, just before 32 minutes, Exeter, when he's talking to, uh, when Cal first arrives at the base and they're sitting at his desk, he's got Dr. Rachel Adams. And that was good. They had female scientists, you know. They were aware. But when Exodus talking to him, he's saying, you know, I have gathered men of vision, men of this, men of that, and together. And I'm thinking, you got a female scientist just there, dude. In Some, the room. In the room. <laughs> the hint is a skirt. Um, maybe aliens can't tell. Um, and then when they're approaching Metaluna and, and Dr. Cal, and Dr. Rachel Adams are a bit exhausted after being pressurized. In the tube. After spending some time in a tube. Um, and he says, you know, as a scientist, um, you know, you will want to see this. And he turns to Rachel Adams. And as a woman, you'll be curious. And I thought, well, she's a scientist too. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like saying, you know. There's, um, there's either or. Yeah. <laughs> you can be a scientist, you can be a woman. woman. Can be both. both. Yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting for him to say, you know. Maybe, you know, as a woman, you'll be inspired to make us all lunch. A sandwich. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> also, uh, several times in the film, he tells her how much of a sissy she yeah. is. And I like the, that. She was a sissy. <laughs> when the meteorists come, she's the one who screams, oh, my God, we're going to die. When the yeah. men are yeah. saying cool. Yeah. Yeah, she she well, and she's the one gets clumsily clumsily falls on her yeah. face multiple times while being chased by the yeah. Tom. But she certainly was very screamy, right? Yeah. She was yes. very fall over and screamy. Oh well, yes, yeah, okay. I, that's and that's where funny. I think because I think for the audience of time there was a horror element to it, and so they had to have the. Ah! Um, but I liked how the doctor called her a sissy. Calls yeah. her a sissy, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, she didn't have to be a sissy. Yeah. Um. And I also read a bit of trivia where um, her alien, the alien uh, clothes she has to wear, her pants were so skin tight, um, she couldn't wear underwear. Um, she had to have a female assistant help put them on, put those pants on. 
and take them off. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And the chairs on the UFO are weirdly designed sort of long well, the standing chairs. Standing chairs. Yeah. And she said, look, these are the only chairs we could actually sit on comfortably because we couldn't sit in normal chairs while we were in these costumes. Yeah. Yeah, they're the easy jet chairs of the future. Mm. Um, the, was it Ryanair? That's yeah. what you'll be <laughs> There's a standing room only <laughs> soon. Um, so that's our first uh, episode of The Lost Sofa. Excellent. Yep. So the crowd goes wild. At last, welcome to you. So that was great. Our first episode of The Lost Sofa with uh, Rick Legato taking us through some of the narrative uh, facts and figures and foibles of the storytelling process for this one. Um, let's move now to uh, something that's a little dear to me, which is that that space where trivia, facts, figures, the weird things that happen in production, the the coincidences, the backstories, the the things that really make it interesting for nerds like myself. And Tom has a brand new section called Just the Tip. So for this, I thought, well, this segment is about trivia and inf- interesting things that happen on set or about the actors. So I thought I might start. I often, in, in previous episodes that we've done with the show, I've said um, I'd like to give you the German title of the film. Awesome. Awesome. Lang- uh, other language movies don't uh, have to translate their own film. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the movie that I've grown up being in Germany, I uh, I knew this film as uh, Metaluna Vier Antwortet Nicht, which translate as Metaluna 4 is not answering. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the title we Germans grew up with. <laughs> Love it. At Hell- no point do they try to call them. They're always in communication with Metaluna 4. Yeah. It never does not answer, <laughs> but that's the title. <laughs> um, when am I ne- not entertained by the German version of the oh, actual title? It's always worth mentioning, looking those <laughs> up, yeah. So then um, the best, the first first place I go to is usually the, the IMDb trivia thing, and there was not much on this film. Mm-hmm. Really, there, on, on, it seems to be a pre- pretty straightforward production, uh, pretty straightforward special effects uh, for, the, for the days. Very, very, very fantastic special effects, but nothing. Um, they've done rubber monsters before and so on. So I started looking into the... Um, to the actors. Uh, first main actors are Carl, Dr. Carl, Dr. Cal. Uh, the actor's name is Rex Reason, which is probably the, one of the coolest names you could actually have as a real name for an actor. Yet studios at the time decided to give them aliases. Okay. So this guy who has that fantastic top billing name of Rex Reason for the first few movies was actually called uh, Bart Roberts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his name was just too exciting. Just, yeah, studio just changed it for you. He didn't even know that that happened, and so he he pleaded with the studio to get his old name back. And after two minutes, two, two movies, he he got it back. Same with with Faith Faith Demurg. She's the um, the female. She's Doctor Ruth. 
And uh, yes, yes, she was faithed on for the first few movies before she actually was billed at her at a proper name. So there was a time where so they changed changed the name. Yeah. What the new one? Faith, no, Faith Dawn. Dawn is Faith better Dawn. than what was Bart. Faith Demurgui, you don't even know how to pronounce it. No, properly. you don't. Yeah. 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 Or spell it. Yeah. Bart was shocking. Like, what was his last name? Bart Roberts. Yeah. Roberts. <laughs> Come on, Rex Reason is not. He had a. He had a uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> he he had um, uh, identical twin. A brother, yeah. That I was don't also, think they were identical, oh. but people, te- people did tend to confuse the two. And he was an actor as well. Yeah. Yes. I forgot what his first name was. Oh, he was he was a very cool first yeah. name as well. Oh, I forgot, yeah. Anyway, other actors in this film of note. We've already mentioned the doctor, uh, the professor from Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. And going down the list, there's one shot um, where they, where the, uh, with, with Bob, the assistant, receives a parcel. This is the big catalog that Dan was mentioning earlier mm-hmm. from a post, um, postman who delivers the parcel to the laboratory. Delivers the, the book, I think, the yeah. Joe. That postman is Coleman Francis, who turned out later on to make uh, B-movies of his own. In fact, Probably Z movies because he is he's together with Ed Wood competing for the position of the worst filmmaker oh, really? of all time. Yeah, yeah. Coleman Francis turned out some real bad turds as a, as a director, as a director of, okay. of, of of science fiction movies that are incredibly boring, have stories going all over the place, no budget. Took all his friends and family to be actors in the film, uh-huh. so he made three movies in his time, and they were all yeah, 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 yeah pretty. Pretty rotten <laughs> films that uh, that fans love to see, just like they love to see Edward Wood. And then, of course, the other actor of note is the bloody cat. Orangey. Really? Orangey is the actual name of the cat. Orangey. Mm. Orangey is the actor. Okay. The cat actor. That's its. That's its real name. His real name. Mm-hmm. And its did, stage name who is, is <laughs> Neutron in this. Film. In this yeah. film is Neutron. In he, his very first movie, he plays the character. Okay. Plays the character of the lab cat. <laughs> he plays the character of the lab of, of Neutron. As opposed to some of his previous roles in the lounge uh, <laughs> of the house cat. <laughs> Absolutely. He's the same cat that um, Audrey Hepburn uh, befriends in Breakfast at Tiffany's. You're kidding. Yeah. Well, that's a famous cat. That is a famous cat. So he's the most famous actor on, in, in that film. Could be. Could, in this film, he it is. could be. He has a longer f- film career spanning longer than Rex Reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just not as good a name. Orangey. <laughs> Why? Because the cat's orange. Um, that cat in, in Breakfast and Tiffany's has a really powerful role at the end of the film. Yeah. Like that whole premise of yeah. she throws the cat out of the cab in the rain. It's pouring rain. And she's just hell with the cat and throws it out of the cat. And he gets out of the car and goes back to find the cat when he – he sort of rejects her. If that's the sort of person you are, then I don't think I'm really in love with you sort of thing. And he gets out and goes back and looks for the fucking cat. And the mm. final scene where they embrace and the movie ends is be- is with the cat in between them. <laughs> it's a very famous cat. Famous cat. Yeah. She also, he, he also played Mushy in The Diary of Anna Frank. Really? Lord. Wow. He gets was around. an incredible shrinking man. He did 18 movies in his, in his lifespan oh, over 20 the years. The owner would be fucking rolling in the it owner because was... the cat can't spend it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the cat got two Oscars. What? There is a cat. There is a. There is a. There is a um, Not a cat Oscar. Yes, there is. There's a, an animal Oscar. A animal Oscar. Oscar. It's called the Patsy Awards. I guess we had we had animals that were heroes, um, yeah. main credited characters like um, Benji, Rin Tin Tin, mm. Lassie. Yes. yes. Black, and there was Black a, Beauty. There were animals who sacrificed their life essentially for films. There was a, a horse that died on a shot of a film. 
and they wanted to give that horse posthumously award, and that's okay. how the first Patsy started. Patsy is the picture animal top star of the year. Wow, I didn't and know so that. And so an annual award, which was the equivalent for animals wow. to the Oscars, and they had different categories. They had carnivore, herbivore, they had, <laughs> <laughs> they had other <laughs> so different categories. Probably for- not on the main night. This <laughs> <laughs> like the VFX happens a week before. I'm pretty sure they're not having the Patsies on the main night. Probably the not. They had their own little things. But yeah, Orangey won two of those. He's the only cat ever to win two Patsy Awards. So when Lee Harvey Oswald was dragged out of the cinema um, and arrested after John F., uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination, he was famously heard to say, I'm just a Patsy. He's literally referring <laughs> to that phrase. I'm just an animal. I'm just, just, yeah. just trained to do what I yeah. do. Yeah. I'm a stand-in yeah. animal. And in fact, the very first film that, that Orangey was in, he was the main main character in the film. The film it, was called Rhubarb. And, that was and it was the about the cat Rhubarb, okay. whose owner dies and bequeaths upon the animal the uh, all his fortunes, including the ownership ah. of a, a baseball team. Well, that, that story's <laughs> been retold a bunch of times, hasn't it, where the, mm. where the animal... Um, uh, inherits the fortune and then the the weaselly little money-grubbing members of the family try to take out the animal and various various other stories. I yeah. can't believe that the most famous character, a famous actor in this film is a One cat. of the most successful ones is, is, is a, a cat. cat. <laughs> 18 credits. Yeah, more than Rex Reason did. Um, uh, at least more, more, more years, from 1951 to 1967. He ended up doing a lot of TV stuff. He was in Batman. Wow. CT TV show? Oh, I think I remember a cat. Oh, you're just in, saying that now. No, I think I do. They have heaps I'm of cats sure. in Batman. Every in time the, Catwoman shows no, up, no, there's a cat. No, no, in the mansion. I'm pretty sure there's a cat in the mansion. I'm pretty sure there's a yeah. that, ah, that colour cat, cat in yeah, the mansion. Alfred, Alfred yeah, Alfred normally yeah. thinks a cat. Yeah. I'll have to have a look. Well, I'll be. <laughs> yeah. Very famous. Other things that I found of interest are the, the aliens with the incredible foreheads. Mm-hmm. There's this, uh, um, a part in the movie where the assistant comes in and has drawn these beautiful drawings of the aliens. And he's got um, Exeter and his, what, Brock? Brack. 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 And he's got these drawings of them and, and, and Ruth points at them and says, oh, look at the heads. They have these dimples in them. That's right. Completely mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that they're fucking seven inches tall. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's and the right. entire film, they completely, there's a, there's a cinema trope called failing the spot check. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what this is. These are things with seven-inch foreheads yeah. and nobody ever questions well, anything. I remember that scene in the in the film where it took a drawing for them to realise that. They just, like, but they you've been talking to the these people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about the people that have been in front of you forever? And, and Dan Aykroyd thought that was so hilarious that he based his Coneheads, oh, creation, the coneheads. Yeah, the coneheads yeah. creation on these aliens. Oh, so wow, when that's he did cool. Saturday Night Live, these are the inspiration for the Coneheads. Because well, that, it's sort of hilarious to have these things with huge heads that nobody questions. It deserves a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly the type of thing that we want to uh, hear in this particular segment. Yeah. Those pathways are awesome. It's, it's, it was really good. Um, the flying saucer design. Mm-hmm. See one uh, going up there. Oh, the that, timing's perfect. That was uh, based on the uh, McMinnville Mac- UFO. Right. There's some UFO photos from 1950 that a farmer photographed. Oh, two, I know two, the two one. Images. I know the one. And uh, at the time, nobody to this point, nobody has actually exposed those images as a hoax. Yeah. But enough skeptics have gone saying, "Look, there's a power line right above that, yeah. and that UFO looks exactly like the mirror of a Ford, um, you know, Ford automobile <laughs> that that, you know, it's just a mirror." Car mirror suspended from a wire. Yeah. But uh, at the time, yeah, this was only five years ago, and there was a big, big hubbub about those photos. And so the designers um, 
designed those spaceships to look like. That's pretty cool. Like them from that Im image, yeah. Yep. I noticed uh, a story parallel just uh, between this movie and a film that we discussed on the show before. Where somebody gets drafted by aliens, gets a test, has yes. to has to <laughs> has to pass the test yes. to get taken by aliens to help them win their interstellar win war. their war. Yeah, absolutely. It's the last starfighter. It's the last starfighter. Absolutely, ah, the uh, Excalibur test yes, almost. Yes, yes. So yes. this is the nerd version of the Excalibur test, where there's no physical prowess really, um, and we could question whether Cal could even build the damn thing without Joe. Maybe Joe did all of the hard lifting. Cal did a lot of pipe smoking in the background. Or, or maybe Joe's wife. Maybe. Maybe Joe's wife did a lot of the lifting. Um, but, but, yes, yeah. the Excalibur test to uh, to qualify for yeah. the program, for the space program. Play a video game. But I think, yeah, Starfighter is a new retelling of that film, maybe a bit more yes. successful. Yes, yeah. maybe we should uh, bring into question the writer of Last Starfighter, who is self-hailed as a genius as far as coming up with that story. Um, so that is our first episode of Just the Tip with Tom McGill. So that's the end of episode two of our exploration into this island Earth. What is your How many of you are there?